throughout history. Um, we give thanks for this delicious food, and we do this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So first of all, kitchen team, could you please either stand or come out here so I can recognize you? We have a brand new fourth Sunday breakfast team, and we are so excited. Come on. And so thankful for the delicious food this morning, and thank you for serving. And extra kudos, please, to John, who helped guide the kitchen team this morning. Yes. He says we passed. Oh, wow. That's high praise. Yes. We'll find out next time we're on our own. All right, so today's topic, Julian of Norwich, one of my favorite um, saints um, for many reasons, and she... I wouldn't so much say it was a conversion with her, more like a transformation, but um, I wanted to bring this to you today just because of the, the impact that she had on our Christian faith, and many of us aren't aware of her or, or who she was and what she did. So, she was born around 1342 and died around 1416, but we're not quite sure of the absolute date of her death. Divine love was the meaning of her life and her message to the world. She is known to us almost only through her book, The Revelations of Divine Love. It's based on a series of prophetic visions, and the work is widely acknowledged as one of the great classics of the spiritual life. She is thought to have been the first woman to write a book in English, which has survived. Thomas Merton called Julian one of the greatest English theologians, and former Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams considered Julian's book to be the most important work of Christian reflection in the English language. She was truly an ecclesiastical star. We do not know her actual name, But her name, Julian, is taken from St. Julian's Church in Norwich, where she lived as an anchoress for most of her life. We know little about her life prior to the record of her transformative visions, and some have speculated that prior to becoming an anchoress, she had been a nun or possibly a married woman. So what is an anchoress? An anchoress was a woman who was walled into a cell to live a life of, voluntarily, to live a life of prayer and contemplation. The male equivalent was an anchorite. Anchoresses were enclosed in their cells and had no way to get out. Despite how extreme this may seem to us today, this way of life seems to have been remarkably popular in the medieval period. Scholars have found that there were around 100 in England in the 12th century, and the figure swells to 200 from the 13th to the 15th century. Might be good for maybe a week. 
Yep. No kids. A mystic. So um, she's described as a mystic, and I wanted to give you a little bit of definition on that. And a mystic is simply one who has moved from mere belief or belonging systems to actual inner experience of God. A mystic sees things in their wholeness, connection, and union, not only their separate particularity. A Christian mystic is one who can see Christ everywhere and even in oneself. If you want to find God, then honor God within you. You will always see God beyond you. For it is only God in you who knows where and how to look for him. Any mystics in the room? I think I'm kind of maybe half one. (laughs) Saints embody goodness while mystics embody love. It's a quote from Carl McComan. The mystic is not a special kind of person. Each person is a special kind of mystic. And that's William McNamara who gave that quote. So Julian lived during an interesting time. She was no stranger to violence and suffering. She grew up in a world ravaged by the Hundred Years' War between England and France and torn apart by the Great Papal Schism. She also lived through the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, during which thousands of disenfranchised tenant farmers and laborers marched all over England looting monasteries, burning records of their serfdom and debt, and killing their hated overlords. Most tragic of all, from the time that Julian was six years old, she endured repeated outbreaks of the Great Pestilence, later termed the Black Death, which eventually killed more than half the population of Europe. And this is something I didn't know. Fifty million people were killed, died because of the Black Death. It was no less than apocalyptic. And I, I, I kind of wonder if maybe that was a misprint and it was 5 million. No, it was 50. Okay, 50 million. So Julian was known as a spiritual counselor. People would come to her cell in Norwich to seek advice, considering that at the time, the citizens of Norwich suffered from plague and poverty, as well as famine, she must have counseled a lot of people in pain. Yet, her writings are filled with hope and trust in God's goodness. The transformation. Julian's visions um, were an extended theological reflection on the passion, the death, and the sufferings of Jesus. In May of 1373, when Julian was 30 years old, she became gravely ill. She was paralyzed and near death. The local curate told her to fix her eyes on a crucifix above. And suddenly all her pain was taken away and the figure of Christ on the cross appeared to come alive. She saw Jesus bleeding in front of her. For the next 12 hours, Julian entered into a profound mystical experience of Christ's suffering and his transformation into glory. 
It was as if she was witnessing the passion through these visions. She described them later as a series of animated snapshots of iconic moments, blood trickling down from the crown of thorns, blood coagulating from the scourge wounds, the dying and the discoloration of the face shortly before death. She truly received insight into his suffering and his love for us. She also received some verbal assurance. And it's a a phrase that many of us are familiar with. All shall be well and all shall be well and all matter of things shall be well. And T.S. Eliot actually ripped that off from Julian of Norwich. At first, she couldn't accept these words. How could she believe that all things would be well when her whole world was obviously falling apart? She was so tortured by the years of illness, war, and suffering. Her doubt was understandable. She wrote, Ah, good Lord, how might all be well for the great harm that has come by sin to thy creatures? Julian's mental anguish was indicative of humanity's innate sense that our lives are terribly broken and that we don't know how to fix them. We simply cannot save ourselves from the messes we get into because of our pride, anger, selfishness, jealousy, greed, and the list goes on. Julian became convinced that everyone is loved unconditionally by God. She understood that in God there is no wrath or blame. All the anger and recrimination are on our side. God shows only compassion and pity for human beings because of the inevitable suffering we have to endure as a result of our humanity. Now this is big for that time because when you think of what they were, God was not presented as a kind, loving God in this time. He was um, considered wrathful, vengeful, um, very legalistic. And so this was new revelation that God could be loving and compassionate. The revelation filled Julian with immense compassion for her fellow human beings. And she longed to bear witness to the divine love, mercy, and the visions she had experienced. Admittedly, Julian did not become politically active in our contemporary sense. No woman in her time was allowed to be educated at a university hold public office, instruct others, or preach from a pulpit. Lay people were forbidden to teach religion except to their children. But if we consider that political connotes selfless devotion to serving the body politic and showing compassion to those in need, then Julian did become a force for social transformation. Now the writing and the life is a recluse. Julian recovered and wrote her visions down in a text. The revelations of divine love comes to us in two versions. The first, called the short text, was written shortly after she saw the visions and had the early title of A Vision Showed by the Goodness of God to a Devout Woman. Around 1390 is when Julian chose to be enclosed as an anchoress literally anchored to the side of the church of St. Julian in Norwich. 
Her purpose in this lifestyle was the pursuit of spiritual life and ultimately union with God. Anchoresses like Julian symbolically and physically died to the ways of the world by being sealed into a set of rooms attached to a church. As I researched this and wrote um, this presentation, I, I considered what that must have been like and how, how, we, how someone could choose that. And I think about, even in her time, the state of mind that she was in and the state of things in the world at that time. And I think, you know, if I'd lived through the Black Death three times, many wars, I think locking myself <laughs> in, a, in a cell, you know, might be, might be a good thing. Um, but she didn't just stay there. Um, she decided to do three things. Pray, counsel, and write. She lived there for about 25 years in a small hermit cell, and she was attended by a maid, so she had a maid, brought, uh, who brought her food, clean clothing, and parchment and ink. She devoted herself to prayer and contemplation to offer counseling to those who came to her anchorage window seeking spiritual direction and to writing. And I have to admit that when I saw this, I thought of um, the Charlie Brown or is it Lucy that has the, those? Yes, yes. So people would, she had a window and people would come up to the window to get counseling and spiritual direction. For five cents. For five cents. <laughs> Anchoresses were permitted to have cats. And in your picture on your handout, you can see a cat. In iconography, Julian is also is often pictured with one, which I think is just a neat, as a cat lover, just a neat. Um, so she's the first cat lady. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. So over the next um, twenty or so years, she reflected more on the meaning of the visions she had seen, and that result was a mature reflection upon them, which is known as the long text. The long text is greatly expanded to include her meditations on what she saw. She offers to readers a thoroughly theological, honest, and encouraging picture of God and the spiritual life. The work reveals an intelligent, sensitive, very down-to-earth woman who maintains her trust in God's goodness while addressing doubt fear, and deep theological questioning. She developed a mystical theology of the Trinity based on her personal witness of the goodness of God, of the lack of wrath or blame in God, of the godly will that never assented to sin nor never shall, of the sacrifice that Christ will accomplish at the end of the world of divine inspiration that is the ground of our beseeching in prayer of the value of suffering and of the motherhood of God. The value of suffering, that sounds maybe contradictory. However, we have all suffered at some point in our lives. 
Maybe we, some of us have suffered more than others. And when we come out of that suffering, my experience has been, that's when I realized God has done his best work in me. And I like to call it being in the ditch. <laughs> when I'm in the ditch, God is working. And so when we're in suffering, when we're in grief, those are all things that are important to feel, even though they're hard. They're important to feel. Um, and I imagine that she saw many, many, many people who were in this state, and she was able to give them hope in a compassionate God. So through her visions, she experiences attention. Like, not attention, a tension, like attention, between her experience of the love of God and the church's teachings on hell and judgment. She does not choose one or the other, but holds to her experience and to the church's teachings. She tells us, but Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered with these words and said, it was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. She also realized that as truly as God is our Father, as truly is God our Mother. By giving birth to humankind in blood and water on the cross, and by nurturing and inspiring us throughout our lives, a Mother Christ figure is the paradigm for all earthly mothers, caregivers, advisors, teachers, and volunteers, and for all who dedicate their lives to the works of mercy and social service. Let me stop right there. I see some concern. Julian did not say God was a woman. She said that God had maternal characteristics, and I believe that to be true. I also believe that any time we um, imply human feelings and emotions to God, that takes us down a slippery slope. Because he is above and beyond anything we know or we think. I used to think God is everything we know and everything we don't. So she talks about the maternal um, vision of God. She says, Our great God, the supreme wisdom of all things, arrayed and prepared himself to do the service and office of motherhood in everything with service, nearest, readiest, because of his most loving and surest, because it is truest. It's a lot of ists. So she's equating God with a, the nurturing, loving, um, true experience of, of mother, motherhood. She says, every man and woman who wishes to live contemplatively needs to know of this. So that it may be pleasing to them, despite nothing ever, as nothing ever created. So as to have the love of uncreated God. For this is the reason why those who deliberately occupy themselves with earthly business, constantly seeking worldly well-being, have not God's rest in their hearts and souls. For they love and seek their rest in this thing, which is so little, in which there is no rest. And do not know God who is almighty, all wise, and all good. For he is true rest. 
And again, this was so contradictory to what the church was teaching at the time. The church was teaching an angry God, a wrathful God. How, I mean, how would they honestly know any different based on the times that they were living in? War, illness, some, some groups having all their possessions just wiped out of existence. I think it would be easy to draw the conclusion that God was mad. And there must have been something they did to make him mad. Did anyone accuse her of blasphemy? Or... Probably, yes. We won't be covering that today. But I'm happy to research it and get back with you. <laughs> yes, I would imagine that there was some uproar um, for her writings. In fact, they were very nearly destroyed in the Reformation. But... To think about it, her teachings and her visions kind of line up with the teachings of the Reformation, a God full of grace and not a God of, of works and legalism. So why is she important to us today? What has, what has she got to tell us in the process of transformation? How can we work to make all things well in our world without losing heart? Would anybody like to share maybe a brief transformation that they have seen or witnessed in their lives um, that ended in the, in the um, idea that all things were well? I'm putting you on the spot. I'm on. Oh, Tammy. Would you share? Well, in the last two years, I've had a hip replacement, a cancer diagnosis, and I'm here walking around like I never had it. Praise God. That's a huge transformation. Praise God, Tammy. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Who else? You know, I think of um, my children and the transformation that I've seen in them as they've grown and changed and it's beautiful most of the time <laughs> I didn't say that I think they were right down the hall <clears throat> so anyone who has ever served the poor the persecuted or the marginalized knows that the two greatest dangers in transformation and, and in thinking of the world in a peaceful, loving place, the two greatest dangers are disillusionment and burnout. My friends who work in the um, nonprofit areas of the world, of the community, um, talk of this a lot, of the burnout. It is a calling to do that work. It is a calling to do the work of a missionary, of a um, anyone who is out boots on the ground, serving the needy and the marginalized. And the burnout is real. Is real. I think um, many of us can, can think of that in our professions and in our roles and even in the volunteer work that we do. Burnout is real. So how do we get past that? These problems, she said, are so vast 
and our efforts are so small. In our frustration, we may try to dictate solutions instead of eliciting creative collaboration. I'm, I am guilty of that. Um, one of the th great things I learned in my nine and a half years as children's ministry director is to delegate. And I, learned, I mostly learned that. <laughs> I mostly learned that. So we can become exhausted, infuriated, and sometimes feel betrayed. We question how can we continue when the odds seem so stacked against us. You know, I think this is relevant to any profession, really. Um, we go have those ebbs and flows and those mountaintop experiences and those ditch experiences. How can we continue when the odds seem stacked against us? So Julian would say that we must go into the ground of our being in order to live contemplatively. Like her... Maybe we should develop a daily practice in which we learn to rest and breathe in silence and stillness. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to go lock ourselves in a cell. Um, however, she had some really, really novel ideas for the time that she was in for growing closer to God. So we become aware of the turbulence in our minds, releasing thoughts and letting go of our emotional attachment to those thoughts. We need to become ever more aware of being aware. I like that. Become more aware of being aware. In order to experience the deep connection of our own awareness with divine awareness. This is the mystic in her talking. And when we must rely on divine awareness working in us and through us if we are to make a difference. We cannot do it alone. We cannot do what others must do for themselves. We can only evaluate, advise, encourage, and empower. I think that's a valuable um, excerpt from her book. What we can do, evaluate, advise, encourage, and empower. And I would also add love to that. Love and respect. So the revelation that all shall be well does not provide an instant cure for all of our personal, family, and global problems. Wouldn't that be nice? We could just say all shall be well and um, you know, there was no more war, there was no more um, political back and forth, and none of it. That would be nice if we could just sweep it away. But it doesn't provide an instant cure-all. These words from her are a prophecy and a promise of the ultimate transformation. I think this is when she saw Jesus and heard him speak these words. She understood it as pointing to the cross. She says, eventually divine love, divine love will convert every evil into good, every inequality into justice, and every suffering into into joy. However, we may not be able to see how this will happen until we have been fully transformed from within, until we have been received through death and rebirth into the divine dimension. And at last, 
We'll be able to understand how all manner of things shall be well, because the divine dimension is love. So she's saying that, you know, when we die, and when Jesus comes again, we'll be able to understand how all things shall be well. So will such a contemplative practice transform the world? No, but it will transform us. Our love can go deeper. Our patience will go stronger, and our service become more authentic and productive. We will be able to feel compassion for those who challenge us and maybe keep our balance in situations that threaten to undermine us. We will listen more attentively, evaluate opposing viewpoints more generously, and cooperate more willingly. We can recognize that the real work of transformation, whether of individuals or nations, is divine work. In ministry, we talk about heart work. Heart work. That's not something that can be quantified. I can't, we can't say that um, you know, 30% of you all here today have had your heart touched and changed. We don't know that. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. What she's saying is living a life of thoughtfulness, of reflection, of time with God is where we start to feel that heart change in us. She says humans, of course, play an indispensable part. Every act of peace and loving service and every word of kindness or forgiveness helps to make all manner of things well. The more we collaborate with the work of divine love, the more we will experience that love bearing fruit in our own lives and lives of others. As we are transformed, others will be too. Because as we grow in our knowledge and love of Christ, we are able to share that through words, but mostly actions. And that can help to transform others as well. Julian died sometime after 1416, and her writings were almost destroyed during the Reformation but they weren't. Her shrine is visited by pilgrims from all over the world. Has anyone been there? Where is it? Where is it located? Norwich, England. The shrine. Her work is well respected by theologians, historians, and literary scholars, and there are now dozens of translations of her writing, together with countless commentaries. Modern poets and writers like T.S. Eliot reference Julian in their writing. I think the first time I was aware of the All Shall Be Well, it was from T.S. Eliot um, in his poetry. And then I read this, and I thought, well, he, he took that, didn't he? But he gave, her, he gave her credit. He gave her credit. So Julian's relationship with God was personal. It was intimate, and it was conversational. What would that look like? To have a conversational relationship with God. I'm not saying that you hear him talk back all the time. Maybe you do. What I'm saying is keeping that connection open 
through prayer and through worship and through time spent with him with no distractions. And that's so hard. That's so hard. I've, I've realized I cannot do that in my house because if I try to have quiet time and read my Bible, then I look up around the room and I see, oh, that pile of laundry needs to be folded <laughs> or the dishes are, are piling up in the sink. So why should I be able to sit and do this when I need to do that? So I have to go out, go outside, go to Starbucks, believe it or not. Actually, I prefer Panera. Um, <laughs> and find a space and just be with God. Just be with God. She does not, Julian does not hesitate to voice the struggles that she had with sin. Even, even as a hermit, as a recluse, the struggle she had with sin, or making, experience, making sense of her experience of God and the teachings of the church, which were not the same. Neither God nor Julian <laughs> resolves the tensions between the realities of judgment and those of grace and love. We would know of that thanks to Scripture, thanks to Paul, and mostly thanks to the words and the actions of Jesus. What Julian does is hold to both judgment and grace. Father Joe talks about that a lot, law and gospel. And she was making that distinction, and she was one of the, maybe the earliest person to make that distinction in the modern world. Wise counsel for all of us. Whatever our struggles or doubts, while trusting in God, that all shall be well. And that is faith. That is faith. We know the end of the story. We know that our salvation is secure. And all will be well. Are there any questions? Comments, additions, sissy. Back to the anchors. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> did she choose to go? She, she did. To go she did. Now, can you choose to get out? Um, probably, I would think so. Um, and how long? She was there twenty-five she, years. Did she died. Mm-hmm. Twenty-five years. Yep. And all she had a maid and a cat, which actually sounds kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Tammy. So it wasn't really jail. Right. No, she chose it. It was um, seclusion, solitude. And she chose it because of the visions that she had had, the transformation that she had had on her deathbed. And she chose to contemplate those things. It was 20 years before she wrote the long text. So she spent a lot of time in prayer and, and thinking about those visions. You said this worked it a lot before. Yes. Yes. But the maid could get in and out because the maid could bring her things. And, um, and then she had the window. Again, Lucy. And the, in England. It was where in England? In Norwich. Does they still have the room? I mean, the. I don't know that. I, maybe at her shrine they do. 
Maybe she chose that because she would have had too many distractions. Maybe, maybe so. Well, she knew that she knew that there was a need for spiritual direction and for counseling, um, and she offered that. And people, I think, came from far away to receive her counsel and her direction, which is also amazing for the time that people would seek a woman for that. Any other questions or comments? Josh, are you looking up to see if it's still there? No, I was just going to see where Norwich is. Oh. It says a couple hours northeast of London, near the coast. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, I've enjoyed being with you, and I'm with you next week, and we'll talk about a more modern <laughs> conversion story. And I think I know who it is, but I'm, I'm still kind of contemplating. But it will be in the e-news. <laughs> Thank you.